Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. We are finishing up our, uh, our series today, our marriage series today, and we are, uh, we are talking all about sex. And I will say this, Pastor Jeff um, talked about Miss Irma Madison, and, and only some ladies get, we call them Miss uh, so it's Miss Irma, um, and uh, 93-ish years old, and um, actually I think exactly what was said, it was Jeff said, Pastor Peter is going to be talking about sex today, and her response was, loud enough for everybody in the congregation to hear, was, oh good, I need to learn more about that. Um, and so, um, so if, if lovely Miss Irma can handle this, so can we everybody, we can, uh, <laughs> we can do it. But we're finishing up this series. Next week, I just want to let you know kind of what we're, what we're jumping into. A lot of times we talk about how we should, uh, how we should live, uh, sharing the gospel with other people, different things like that. Um, but a lot of times we don't really know what it is that our faith should look like in our own lives. Like how is our faith acted out um, in our own lives? And so next week we're going to do a, a, a quick five-week jaunt, if you will, uh, through the book of James. Uh, it's my favorite book in the New Testament, easily my favorite book in the New Testament. If you're a black and white thinker like I am, James is for you. It says, don't do this, but do that. Don't do this, but do that. I'm like, cool, I can follow those directions. So that's going to kick off next week for five weeks, and then we're in the Christmas season, everybody. I know, crazy. Um, so, uh, so that'll be following everything, everything else. But let's, that's next week. Let's talk about this week. Let's talk about sex, and let's talk about what the Bible has to say about it. Um, it, was, uh, it was funny, though, as I was putting this thing together. I couldn't use my normal, like, cadence, couldn't get my, like, my normal rhythm for how I prepare a, uh, a message, because usually I start with a personal story or anecdote of my own, and I was like, nah, we're going to pass. We're going to pass on that one. Um, but uh, I do have five kids, so draw your own conclusions. So, um, so we do need to talk about it, though, um, because it is one of the things I don't feel like the church has done a good enough job of actually talking about. And because of that, I think there are a lot of confused a lot of confused people in the world, and we should be talking about it because every single one of you here this morning is here because two people had sex, right? I mean, it's true. Let's just, let's just get it out in the open. Everybody's here because your parents had sex at one point, right? And as you look at all these different ideologies, though, as you look at, at the way that culture kind of understands sex in the world today, we know for a fact that we have a lot of people who are very, very confused about what is good, about what is right, about what is noble, and what was intended from the get-go, and growing up in a church like, like I grew up in, the youth ministries I grew up in, I'm sure similar to, to churches that you grew up in, sex was talked about every once in a while. Actually, I know when sex was talked about. Sex was talked about every single February in the youth group that I, that I grew up in. And a letter would go home to parents, and they'd be like, hey, we're talking about sex, we're talking about dating, we're talking about marriage, talking about relationships, and yeah, we're going to talk about sex, so if you don't want your kid to be there, don't bring your kid to hear about the biblical understanding of sex for whatever reason you don't want to send your kid uh, to that. I actually remember one time that uh, my youth pastor um, at the time was, uh, was walking through this marriage, relationship, sex series, all of that stuff, and the thought came up in my head of how far is too far then, right? Because the church, we've done a really good job at establishing one rule when it comes to sex. The church's rule when it comes to sex is do not have sex before you're married. And that's what the church has been known for for a really long time, 
Like that's our stance on sex is sex should be, be between a man and a woman in a committed marriage relationship. And that is true. And that is good for us to be able to understand. But what happens is, is when the church is known for something like that, then we don't get, like our mind begins to drift at that point to, okay, well, if that's true, if that's the rule, if that's the hard and fast rule that I cannot have sex until I'm married, then what else can I do before I get to that point? Like, where is the gray area? Like, okay, well, if it's, if it's only a sin, if I have sex before marriage, what other things is it okay for me to do? Like, at what point do I cross that line? Like, at one point, I remember that same youth pastor, like, teaching everybody what type of kissing was okay and not okay, which is always weird when your youth pastor is teaching you how to kiss, you know what I mean? Like, it's not good on a number of levels. So all that to be said, I don't think the church has done a good enough job of really explaining sex and talking through sex. Like, where is the line? Sex was never talked about in a positive light in the church outside of don't have sex before marriage, and if you wait until marriage, it's going to be so worth it. That's it. That's the only positivity that the church ever talks about sex. Well, why do we need to talk about it? Because culturally speaking, isn't sex just like another physical activity that you perform with your body? It's transactional in nature, right? Isn't it simply that, that you meet somebody that you're attracted to, each of you have impulses that you want to act on, you act on those impulses and then you walk away, no problem, except maybe you have a baby, then there's a little bit of an issue that's created there. Okay, but outside of that, it's just transactional. It's all physical feelings. That's the culture's idea of sex. Before we go any further though, Here's what we as a church need to understand, that we should not be surprised by the distortion of what sex is. We should not be surprised by the distortion of who people assume it is for by people who don't yet know Jesus. So when we're looking out at culture, we do not get to vilify culture for culture being culture, okay? We, I mean, Paul even talks about in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 to 13, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. If people are not rooted in a relationship with Jesus and have not made a profession of faith, then it shouldn't be a surprise to any of us that something that God created as good and beautiful gets distorted into something that's not. That shouldn't surprise any of us. So today we're not going to be looking at what not to do. Okay, We're going to be looking at what we are supposed to do in the marriage bed. So we aren't looking over our shoulders, judging people outside of the church based on their sexual habits. That's not our job. As our job is to love those who don't yet know Jesus, not condemn them for, adhere, for not adhering to my religious points of view. Okay? Hear me. Hear me on that. Beyond that, we're not going to get into the gutter today. As a reminder, of 1 Timothy 3.16. 1 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed. Everybody say all Scripture. Okay, good. That means that everything that we are going to read in Scripture today is God-breathed. God this is the Holy Spirit written down for us. Okay, this is God's direction, God's instruction for us. And let me tell you, the Holy Spirit is a good writer when we read some of this stuff. And that's a, beyond that, we're not going to, like I said, we're not going to get in the gutter or anything like that. Every portion of Scripture I'm talking about and talking through today, God put there for us to be able to learn and become more like God. And that's a weird statement for us to say when we're talking about sex. Like, God put sex on earth for us to be able to become more like God. Yep, 
That's true. God wants us to become more like him by having sex with our spouse? Yes. So here's the deal. We need to talk about this because many couples, whether they want to admit it or not, struggle sexually. It's, it's true. Sexual struggles in marriage, they come from all sorts of different places. And I'm not going to pretend like I am able to navigate all of these things, especially from the stage. But it's not just like a, a specific sexual sin or lust. Okay, that can be part of it. A lot of times it comes from past sin. A lot of times it comes from personal selfishness, from idolatry. Maybe it's the idolatry of, of sexual pleasure even. Maybe it's some other idolatry that causes problems like idolatry maybe in power or in control or escape or acceptance or self-worth. Right? Lust even causes problems in physical intimacy. Laziness causes problems with physical intimacy. And so we have the issue here. It's twofold. One, culture has distorted sex. And two, couples, married couples, have issues with sexual intimacy. So we need to look at all of this in light of the way that God put the universe together. At the end of the day, we have to recognize that sex was God's idea. If you believe that God created the heavens and the earth, you better believe that God created sex as well. And it was very good. Sorry, I had to. Genesis 1, 27 to 28. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. Did you catch it? God's very first command to a married Adam and Eve, have sex. Look at verse 28 again. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and fill the earth and subdue it. Go have sex. His first command as a married couple, go have sex. Be fruitful and multiply. So why did God create sex from the outset? If we're only looking at this piece of scripture, it looks like the main function of sex was procreation. That's the main function of sex. And that's a good thing. Like I said, we're all here because of sex. We're all here because of procreation. But God could have allowed us to multiply in any other way. Right? I mean, take amoebas, for example. They just split in half. Right? I remember that, and I remember that the mitochondria is the powerhouse in the cell from biology. Those are the only two things that I remember. Neither of them have to do with sex, though. In the act of sex, a man and a woman become one flesh. Biophysics has actually caught up with the Bible. When a man and a woman are together in the, in the sex act, a chemical reaction happens in the human brain. That is the same effect as heroin. I've never tried heroin, but apparently it's very addictive. And that means that a man and a woman, woman, when together, become connected on a deep level. That's why there's no such thing as casual sex. It's not a thing. It doesn't exist. That's why people get addicted to sex. That's why people get addicted to porn. Even men who frequent prostitutes frequent the same one over and over and over again. Why? Because they are physically connected to them on a biological level. If you're into your spouse, your spouse is into you, by the grace of God, you will become, like, as you come into them and physically connected to them, desiring them, you will become one flesh at that point, one family, one marriage bed to glorify one God. 
God built our bodies physically to connect with our spouse during sex. And when we connect with anything else, it leads to death. That's true of all sin. Is that when, when we do things outside of the way that God created them to function, that is sinful. Same goes with sex. So we need to understand that God not only created sex for procreation, God created sex for fun. God also created sex for connection and intimacy with your spouse. So we're going to go over four words today. The first one we just went through. The first one, it was institution. Everybody say institution. Good. God instituted sex. He was the creator of it, the author of it. He's the one who made it as good as it is. He's the one who created it for fun and procreation and for intimacy with your spouse. So we have to get to that level first. God instituted sex. Here's the second thing that we have to understand, that sex is a mystery. Everybody say mystery. Good job. So we recognize that God created sex. We also have to be aware that while he created it, that does not mean that we are able to understand everything that sex does to our bodies, our minds, our emotions, and our spirit. There is a mystery that surrounds sex in a very real way. The story of creation of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, it gives us a really kind of profound insight into, into sexual desire. I think it's crazy any time that I think about the idea that Eve was created from Adam's rib. Especially when you think that, that the two should become one. At one point, one became two. Adam was created singularly from the ground, from the dirt, and Eve was created from him. What was once single became double, became two. So two people came from one person, and in the same way, those two people get to become one flesh once again, intimacy, the way that God had created it from the first place. Like sexual desire is a desire for unity for wholeness. So when we're talking about Adam and Eve and, and God commanding those two to go have sex for the first time, then Adam was whole again as that part of his body that God took from his body to create Eve, to create his helper, to create his spouse, got to be unified with him again. And there was unity at that point. So sexual desire is a desire for unity and wholeness, not just a desire for pleasure that we've boiled it down to. And so when sexual desire is reduced to a desire for sexual pleasure, it becomes mechanical, right? The lover becomes a mere means to scratch where it is that I itch rather than another human being with whom I share personal intimacy, connection with, which is why medical studies have discovered, check this out, married couples, congratulations, married couples, married people have the best, most satisfying sex. Did you know that? That's crazy, because you wouldn't believe that if you turned on the television, right? You wouldn't believe that at all. Like, the best sex is obviously casual sex that just happens based on shows that are on TV and all of that stuff. Okay? Married couples, they enjoy sex more often and have the highest levels of physical and emotional fulfillment. Check this out. 88% of married people receive great physical pleasure from their sexual relationship with their spouse. 88%. And 85% report the same positive experience emotionally. So we need to recognize this isn't just a physical act. There's emotions that go into this too. Hey, church, married couples, good job. That's a B and a B plus. Well done, church. 
But check this out. The gold standard of research, it was done back in 1994. There's this, like, this big national survey conducted by a team at the University of Chicago. And they interviewed 3,400 people. And when the researchers asked these people to respond how sex makes them feel, married people, married people outscored single people in every single measure of delight. Why? Because sex isn't transactional. Sex is a mystery. There's a connection. There's intimacy. This is what, this is what the, uh, the survey said. It said, not only are married people the most emotionally fulfilled, telling researchers they feel loved, wanted, and taken care of while in each other's arms, but they also report high levels of physical pleasure. Far from considering monogamy, monotonous, 91%, 91%, A-minus church, are getting up there, of husbands and wives say they aren't just satisfied with their sex lives, they're thrilled. So if you're married, you've had sex, you know that it is extremely, intensely satisfying when it is used in the way that the creator designed it. That's when it works best, when it brings strength to a relationship, and when it elicits this ecstatic response from both the husband as well as the wife. So everybody say institution. Say mystery. Okay, those are the first two. Now say boundary boundary church this is what we're known for this is the rules listen to the rules follow the world so if sex is a good thing a thing that god created why are there boundaries around it why does the bible say that sex should be in a mutually exclusive marriage commitment between a man and a woman hebrews 13 4 says it let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for god will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous or we'll just, go, we'll just go Old Testament, old school, Ten Commandments on the whole thing that just says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Or how about 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you? Whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. These are the rules for sex. These are the boundaries of sex. So God made something incredible, something beautiful, something mysterious. And then he said, I know I made this beautiful thing. I want you to follow the rules around it or else it's not going to be quite as beautiful. And church, this is what we're known for. And it's good to understand where the boundaries are. Ask any parent of a toddler. Boundaries are good. But we're going to press pause on boundaries for a second because the thing that the church is not known for is talking about freedom. Everybody say freedom. Freedom. That's weird to say that in the church when, it, when we're talking about sex. You know why it's weird? Because over and over and over and over again, we've talked about how this idea of sex, like there are very specific boundaries that we have to, we have to stay inside each of these boundaries. Did you know that some of the most erotic writing about sex is in the Bible? It's crazy. It's about to get spicy in here, everybody. If I giggle a couple times, I apologize. But it's scripture, man. Song of Solomon. Man, I am lucky I did not know about this book of the Bible when I was like 12 or 13. Because it gets spicy. This is King Solomon's conversation with his beloved. And he spares zero detail in describing his intimate love for her. Zero detail. It is very clear from Song of Solomon, that God just didn't create sex. God just didn't create sex. God loves good sex. 
Why? He created it. And it's within the boundaries that he put into place. There's freedom now here. Song of Solomon 7, 7 through 10. This is a metaphor. Your stature is like that of the palm. Your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. May the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over his lips and teeth. I belong to my beloved and his desire is for me. Whoo! God breathed, y'all. Holy Spirit's a good writer. But what happens so often is we get stuck up in this idea of the boundary of sex. And that's all the church is known for. That's all we're known for is like, nope, time out. Okay, you didn't have sex before you're married. Now you can have sex and we're never going to talk about it ever again. God created it. He perfected it. And we wave our finger at people saying, like, God designed sex for man and woman inside a marriage bed. And that's all we say. That's all we talk about when it comes to what the Bible has to say. What if instead of that we said, hey, I, I read the Bible and I believe everything that the Bible says. Yeah, I believe in the Gospels. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe God created the universe. You know what else I believe? God created sex. And God didn't just create sex for people to be born. That's part of it. And God created sex to be fun. God created sex to, to provide intimacy with your spouse. And God loves great sex. Look at Song of Solomon. Like, you might have a couple more people listening to you when you talk about Jesus from now on if you start by talking about the fact that God created sex and he created it very good. But we don't talk about it that way. We don't talk about having, having freedom there. Paul in the Corinthians, he even encourages spouses to make sure they get into the marriage bed together. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. Guys, for the first time, are like getting highlighters out for their Bible. Read this one. <laughs> now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Hold on, time out. That seems backwards. Okay, Paul is talking about single people in that verse. This is why we don't read things out of context, okay? Let's continue to read, because if we just stopped at that verse, we'd be like, wait, how do people come to be? All right, verse two. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And Paul is just going for it. He's like, hey, don't deprive one another. Go for it. So why are boundaries important? Boundaries are important because when we have boundaries, we are not restricting freedom. Hear me on this. Boundaries do not restrict freedom. Boundaries create freedom. They create freedom. When you have sex inside the marriage bed in the way that God intended us to have sex, and you have all the freedom in the world. And Song of Solomon is even spicier than that. Go back and read about the freedom that Solomon and his beloved have. There is some serious freedom happening there. 
And beyond that, why did Paul, why did Paul tell the church in Corinth to have sex with their spouse? Did you catch that? Don't deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Have sex with your spouse to fight sexual immorality. That's what that says. Paul's like, hey, you want to combat sexual immorality, church in Corinth? Have sex with your spouse. Don't deprive one another of it. And there will be less sexual immorality in the world. So he puts those boundaries in place and he's like, hey, look, here's freedom surrounding it. Those boundaries aren't about restricting freedom. It's about creating freedom. Let me explain it. I have two dogs, okay? One of my dogs is neurotic and crazy and when we leave, she freaks out and when she comes back, she pees a little and anytime like you say her name in a somewhat harsh tone, she pees a little and she she, she just pees a lot. (laughs) And I have another dog who's just big and fat and kind of dumb, okay? And those two dogs we keep in our backyard. Those two dogs have the freedom to do whatever they want in our backyard. Those two dogs in our backyard, because of the fact that it's a fenced-in backyard with boundaries that are put into place, are free to pee all over the place and be big, fat, and dumb all over the place in our backyard. They are free to be created as they were created as dogs and do whatever it is that dogs want to do within the boundaries that I put in place for them. One time, uh, our neurotic dog got out. Penny. She's crazy. She got out one time, and uh, Penny was gone for like a full day. Everybody was nervous and posting to social media. It was this big deal, right? We ended up finding her, but when we found Penny, she was scared, and she was confused, and she was hungry, and yeah, like it was a fountain going off as soon as we found her, because again, we peed all over the place. She was so excited to find people, but there there was no freedom outside of the boundary that we had created for her. There was zero freedom there, What she found was a whole bunch of stuff that she had to now navigate on her own, apart from what I, as her master, had created for her to be able to enjoy. She was now trying to do her best not to get hit by cars. She was now trying to do her best to try to find food. She was hiding under a bush, we're pretty sure, when we called her name, and then she she came running out and freaking out and all that stuff, happy to get back into the boundary that we created for her. Why? Because there's freedom in the boundary. She was able to be herself and be a dog inside of that boundary. The same is true of sex. Because of the boundary, because of the fence that God put up for us, we have complete and total freedom within that boundary. Paul goes on in verses 3 and 4 of the same passage. He describes sexual intimacy within marriage in terms um, which probably would have been surprising and even somewhat alarming to his readers. He talks about neither husband nor wife possess authority over their own bodies. For Paul's female readers, this would have been revolutionary. Women at this time, they were considered the legal property of their husbands. And Paul was, uh, was teaching that, that each partner, male and female, had the right to mutual sexual relations. Nothing like this had ever been said before. The wife is entitled to sexual relations with her husband. And this mutual reciprocity, it completely like reoriented the one-sidedness of sex for husband and wife in the first century. So the Bible is completely and totally cross-cultural 
in the first century when all of this is written. But the crazy thing is, it's actually still completely and totally cross-cultural in 21st century Western culture. Because the Bible tells us that sex is not solely about you and your needs. Sex is not about this self-actualization and who am I and all my identity is going to be wrapped up in sex. Sex is meant to be about bringing, about bringing pleasure and love to your spouse, not to yourself. It's just like everything else we've talked about in this marriage series. If you've walked out of this marriage series pointing the finger at your spouse, you have, you have missed the entire point of this series. As this entire series is about you dying to yourself, and sex is the very same thing. Like when husbands and wives practice this principle of bringing pleasure to the other in their sexual intimacy, couples, man, they tell the story of self-denial. They tell the story of, of self-sacrifice. No longer is the focus on the person and, and our own needs, but on the other person and their needs and their desires. And so when this sort of thing is present, Right? The opportunities for, for mutual pleasure, for enjoyment, for joy, for all these things, they are endless when sex becomes less about what your spouse owes you and moves into how you can serve your spouse. Right? Sexual intimacy is completely transformed from a mere physical act to an actual display of the gospel story, dying to yourself for the needs of others. Don't believe me? So why should we be pursuing each other sexually in marriage then? Sexual intimacy is for God's glory. And it serves as an embodied reminder of a couple's one flesh relationship that got established all the way back in the beginning, back in the book of Genesis. And because of that, it makes, this, it makes sense that sexual intimacy should be a regular part of our married lives. Ready to get a little spicy again? Proverbs chapter 5. Right here, that guys? Proverbs chapter 5. Verses 15 to 21, drink, this is a metaphor as well, well, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountains be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all of your paths. You hear that? He's talking about enjoy, enjoy the wife of your youth, men. But in the very same section, he says, for your ways are in full view of the Lord. Like God created you to have sex. God wants you to have sex. And your ways of having sex are in full view of the Lord. There is a standard there. Boundary, freedom. So what's the issue? In our society, we've distorted the view of sex to be something that is about us, something that is selfish, something that is selfish, something that should be transactional rather than something that is intimate. So while God has created us, man and wife, to have sex because he loved us enough to create something so magical we, like so many other things in our world, have turned them from good to sinful. Let's talk about a couple of them real quick. Pornography is pervasive in the church, and that's true of both men and women. Men, 68% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors view porn on a regular basis. Let me say that again. 68% of men and 50% of pastors view porn on a regular basis. 
Young Christian men, 18 to 24, 76% of them actively search for porn. That's bad. That's not good. Women, you're not off the hook. 33% of women aged 25 and under search for porn at least once a month. And only 13% of self-identified Christian women say they never watch porn. 80% of Christian women have watched porn. So what's the issue? Looking at porn is adultery. Adultery is adultery. Sex outside of God's design for it is sinful. Matthew 5, 28. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if we go back to Old Testament, thou shalt not commit adultery. Sex outside of God's design is damaging to those who partake And the unfortunate reality, church, is that far too many of us have taken our eye off the wonderful prize that is the spouse of our youth and decided that we can more conveniently take care of it ourselves. We've so deeply damaged God's design of sex that we've made an addiction out of the perversion of something good. Rather than recognizing sex as something to be enjoyed and desired and longed for, we've We've boiled it down and distorted it to be a physical release that it means nothing more than a temporary high. What a poor view of God's creation. So Christians, what's our role in it then? It's our job to take what God has created and ensure that it remains good and pure and undefiled as long as it depends on us. That's our responsibility. And so anytime somebody talks about sex and our first response is, don't have sex before you get married, that's probably not the best view of sex that we can put forth for culture when it comes to biblical Christianity. Is it necessary? Sure. Is it the end of the story? Absolutely not. So here's the good news. If you're here today and you're a Christian and you love Jesus and your spouse loves Jesus, man, God wants you guys to have sex. Amen? Okay, good. I was hoping for a couple more than that. Woohoo, I'll take that. So husbands, here's the deal. Love your, lives, love your wives well. Recognizing that sex to them is wrapped up more in their emotions that are much deeper and more real than yours are. Pursue them outside of the marriage bed. The old axiom that sex begins in the kitchen, probably a lot of truth to that. Right? You got kids at home? Mom gets home from work, you take care of dinner. Then, draw a bath for mom. Take care of getting the kids to bed, you take care of cleaning up the kitchen, including doing the dishes. You're not a hero if you just shove the dishes into the sink, guys. Do the dishes. And make sure everything on mom's to-do list or wife's to-do list for the day is done. Because if she has things to do, and you try to go into this moment with her distracted, it's not going to be great for either of you. So dudes, recognize that emotion plays a big part in all of this to your wives. That is a reality. Wives, remember, your husband is a visual creature and is most likely going to want more sex than you do. It's just the way we're wired. Sorry. And so it is not a cop-out for the guys to be just like, I, man, I would, I, can we please have sex? Right? That is a real thing. And even though for men there's like this larger physical aspect to all of it, recognize that sex with our spouses is incredibly intimate. 
And it ties us together. That mystery ties us together, recognizing it's, it's this part of being intimate with one another that brings closeness that, that living like roommates never would. Communicate with him, ladies. Talk with him. And you want to make his day? Schedule it. Like, you think you're too busy? Like, schedule it. We got five kids. You don't think we schedule stuff? Schedule it. The world has taken God's design for everything and completely and totally distorted it, especially in the realm of sex. At the risk of crossing the line, can I just say that we should have sex with our spouse because God created us to and we should be known by it? That sex inside of marriage, the way God created it, is the greatest sex there is and ever will be because it is the intention of God's design. Best sex, married sex. We don't talk about that, though. Sex, intimacy, marriage, every single part of this entire thing, this created order is a microcosm of God's relationship with us. All of it. That as we lay our lives down for our spouses, as we recognize that sex isn't about us, it's not a selfish act, as we recognize that we are called to serve our spouse on a regular basis, we die to ourselves to, to lift our spouse up. All of these things are a microcosm of God's relationship with us. We are representing the same thing in that, in our marriages that Jesus did for all of us. That sex isn't about us, it's about our love for our spouse. Now, beyond that, that Jesus came to earth not to glorify himself, not to focus on himself, but came to focus on us to make it so we could be with God forever, dying to himself and then physically dying for us to have a relationship with him forever. And that's what this entire series has been about. All of it. Dying to ourselves to serve our spouse. Having a spouse-focused marriage rather than a me-focused marriage. Amen, church? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Father, thank you for sex. And thank you for your creation of it. And thank you even for a place that we get to tackle some topics that are, man, topics that we should be talking about more often. But in a way that would honor you, in a way that we can learn from your word, in a way that we can enact some of the things that we have learned into our lives, including in the marriage bed, Father. So God, I pray right now that even as we think back through this entire series, as we think back through what it is that we have walked through for the past eight weeks, that whether it's our finances, that we need to make sure that financially we're on the same page as we are living lives of generosity, or whether it's just simply serving our spouse, or whether it's the marriage bed, or whatever it may be. God, I pray that we would listen and understand those things in light of your word, in light of our relationship with you, that it's not just good advice from the pastor, that it's your word that was God-breathed, that your Holy Spirit used regular men to be able to write down. Father, thank you for that. And God, if there's those here who maybe haven't even, haven't said yes to your son yet, haven't made a profession of faith for your son, but they recognize today that he came and he died for our behalf, if that's you this morning, with head still bowed and eyes still closed, you can simply repeat after me, quietness of your heart, 
Simply say, Father A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. That B, I believe you sent your Son to die for me on the cross. To die for my sins, sexual or otherwise, that they are taken care of. And C, that I would choose to follow him every single day. We love you, Father. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.